to H-Town, from the Panhandle Plains to the Valley, and everywhere in between. This is the 5050 Podcast, powered by College Promoters USA. Join me, Hector Cano, as we cover the Texas high school club and college soccer landscape, along with an inside look at the college soccer recruiting scene. The 5050 Podcast is a platform about the people and for the people who are dedicated to the beautiful game. Here we go. It's another edition of the 5050 podcast powered by our proud partners, College Promoters USA. They are America's premier college prep program and high school student athlete marketing service since 1997. Located locally here in the San Antonio area, you can find them in the Ventura Plaza Shopping Center. But you can also find them on social media on Twitter at SATX Recruiting, as well as on Instagram at College Promoters USA. And you can also get more information on what they're about and the many awesome things they're doing on their website at collegepromotersusa.com. My next guest, I almost want to say, is uh, he's an individual that really doesn't require that much of an introduction, but I'll uh, still go ahead and introduce him. An individual we've been wanting to get on here for a while. Very excited to have him on. He is the founder uh, founder and author of the Soccer Starts or Football Starts at Home initiative, as well as a world-renowned trainer, coach, and consultant. He is Mr. Tom Byer. Tom, how are you? Hi, Hector. It's a, a privilege and honor to uh, to be here today. It's my first podcast of 2023, so I've been looking forward to it. Awesome. Great to hear. Great to hear. Yeah, you're. we've been moving a little, a little quickly. I think this is our third episode of 2023, but uh, we decided to go international this time. This is kind of kicking off our international series, and I know you're joining us from all the way, all the way in Tokyo, Japan. Is that correct? That is correct. And actually today, believe it or not, is really the first official day for kids to go back to school and for companies to open up. We have a very long New Year's holiday here in Japan. Yeah. How long does that go for? Does that go for about a good month? No, no. That's uh, it, it goes about a week. It depends on there's a couple of holidays that fall in. And if it falls on a weekend, depending on the calendar year, but it's usually about a, a week to maybe 10 days. That's awesome. That's great. So Tokyo, Japan right now. So it is already tomorrow over there, right? It's about 10 a.m. over there right now, local time. Is that correct? That's right. I can see into the future. So I can uh, I can <laughs> tell you that uh, last night was a good night. And today, this morning has been quite good. We've got the clear skies and beautiful weather. So, yeah, we're a little bit in the future here. There we go. Awesome. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, as we said, excited to have you here for sure. There's so much we want to talk with you about. So thank you for being here. Um so many different directions in which we can go as well, but just briefly, right? So maybe for some of our, whether some of our families, some of our, uh, some of our players who may not be familiar with your work in terms of soccer starts at home, your connection to the state of Texas, tell us a little bit about that. And then the fact that you're also, you know, a, an American who's abroad and who's been doing many special things in Asia for many years. Tell us a little bit about where, uh, where you've been and how you got to where you're at. Sure, real quick. I'm originally from New York, born in the Bronx in the city, but lived upstate New York. I attended a uh, 
a community college, which was a, a perennial powerhouse back in the day in the late 1970s. We were national champions two times, um, Ulster County Community College. I then wound up down at the University of South Florida, the Bulls. Um, probably our most famous alumni is uh, is uh, Roy Wegerly, who I played with. Um, and my, my claim to fame, I have to stick this in whenever anybody asks me about my college career, was my last college game, which was the NCAA Division I national tournament where we were pitted against Duke University and we flew up to Duke and uh, we lost 2-1, but I scored the only goal. So I had to stick that in there. My my career is, is quite lengthy. I, I, I wound up, I'm giving you the short version, wound up in Japan in the, in the uh, mid to late 1980s. And I played for a team called Hitachi, uh, which mm-hmm. is one of the founders of our J League, our professional league here. Um, I was the first foreigner to ever even go to that club. After I got out of, of playing, I hung the boots up, I got into development and I've carved out a bit of a reputation as a, as a, um, my career has mostly been focused on technical skill development. Right. I'm a disciple of the, the Will Kerber methodology, a Dutchman um, who's passed away, but had a profound impact on the football world, focusing on technical skill development. And I introduced that here to Japan and on the commercial side, uh, basically established what I think is perhaps the largest uh, football school commercial business in the world. We've got over 140 of these schools throughout all of Japan. I introduced it. I set it up. I ran it for 15 years, but then I spun out of it about 14 or 15 years ago. But it's had a huge impact on on Japanese football development. Um, and we see that even of recent of this World Cup where we had players from our schools that played in key key roles in 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 the in the team number six number eight number ten um, that all came from our schools. So I've I've got a bit of a unique background. I've I've done a lot of media, casted on Japan's number one television show for children, uh, and so I had my own football corner every weekday morning for fourteen years. So I understand a lot of the ecosystem, but I specialize and focus on building strategies uh, around some of our um, philosophies, such as you've mentioned, the football or soccer starts at home uh, theme, which is really focused on educating parents and engaging with parents of young children to basically kind of get them off to a a flying head start. I'm, I'm a big culture warrior. I believe that culture plays a massive role in football development. And and I'll close with this. And that is, is that we've got 211 member association countries that make up FIFA. But on the men's side, there's only eight countries that have won a World Cup tournament. And those are kind of, and out of those eight, there's only a couple of serial repeaters. So I'm very, I became very interested in focusing on what is the game changer and the difference between the countries that develop the best players in the world and the best players. And here it is. The countries that develop the best players in the world, they win what I call the battle at the entry level. Before a child even crosses over the line into organized play, those players are, are very good technically. They're comfortable with the ball at their feet. They're competent with the ball at their feet. The rest of the world that's made up of non-football cultures, a lot of those countries tend to focus and they believe the battle is at the elite level. So we turn that upside down and we try to focus on basically uh, engaging with families of very young children, as young as two, three, four, five, six, 
because I believe that's the golden age for teaching and learning skills in a fun way with through parenting. Right. Well, that's, it's a mouthful right there. That's so much <laughs> that we can expand on, but yeah. So thank you for that. Um, so before we dive into anything else, let's talk a little bit about our recent, you know, we're just a few weeks removed from a, uh, pretty historic world cup, right? Men's, uh, FIFA men's world cup, uh, an unbelievable world cup final. Uh, and I cannot talk international, you know, I, I can't go, I can't have you on and not talk international in terms of the world cup and trends and what you noticed, what stood out to you, just kind of general thoughts when you look back on uh, this most recent FIFA men's world cup. Yeah, it was a great world cup. I think it, it smashed expectations. There was a lot of negativity about the whole hosting of the world cup, but it turned out to be, I've, I've personally been to five world cup finals sitting in the stadium. So, um, you know, it's and it's the last time that we're going to have a World Cup with with a format of 32 teams next time in the U.S. going to be 48. But I think a lot of a lot of extraordinary things happened um, in this World Cup. And if I even just focus a little bit on what the group that Japan was in, which was one mm -hmm. of the groups of death, so to speak, as they call it, <laughs> with yeah. the Germans, the Spanish and we had Costa Rica. Yeah. Um, and we saw that at least in the group that Japan played it that this whole concept of possession-based football um, basically kind of went a little bit out the window um, in, in regards to Japan did not possess the ball, the majority of both the big games that they won, which was against Germany and Spain. Um, and so we saw a lot of counterattacking. We saw a lot of um, dribbling that basically, which I'm, I'm a huge fan of, and, and that's my specialty of teaching the art of dribbling. But yeah, we saw, you know, a lot of the giants got killed in this game. And we saw some bright spots as well of, of areas of the world that don't usually perform well. And that's in Asia and also Africa mm -hmm. and what the Moroccans did. So it was a very, very interesting World Cup, which I think we can build upon. And it gives hope. You know, when you look at the countries, as I said, you know, since uh, there's been, I believe, 22 World Cups, if I'm not, um, if I'm missing something, but I think it's 22 that span back to nearly 90 years. And just think about it. Out of 211 member association countries, only eight have won a World Cup tournament. That's Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay. Germany, Spain, France, Italy, and England. So now we're starting to see, and out of that, there's really only a bunch of countries that have even come close to even getting into a final. So there's only, I believe, five other countries that have even made it to a final, but they didn't win. So it's a very small, exclusive group of countries that that, that are performing at the highest level. But I'm, I'm hoping and we're seeing a bit of a trend where you know, some of the smaller countries and, and areas, regions, as I just pointed out, Africa and, and Asia are doing better. The U.S. also, I believe, although really, if you look at the statistics, I believe the U.S. only won one game and they drew or lost the, the other two. But the reality is that, that, that we did see very good um, areas of hope for the U.S. team as well. A lot of a good individual play, um, some good collective play as well. So I, I think that we're headed in the right direction. But at the end of the day, and I predicted this in the beginning of the World Cup, I said at the end of the day, after the whole one-month tournament goes on, more than likely we're going to have two countries in the final that make up the eight that have won a World Cup tournament. And, and that's exactly mm -hmm. what happened. 
um, yeah. with France and, and Argentina. So let's see. But uh, they're going to expand the format, which is going to make it a little bit easier for countries that might not be able to qualify for a World Cup to get in. Um, but let's see what happens in a couple of years. Yeah, you know, the the, the 48-team format, 48-country format, it it does it begs the question, and obviously it's too early to tell right now, but does that open up that secondary layer of an opportunity for, for these other countries, right, for another country to break through, right? Um, maybe case in point possibly is it is it the Netherlands, right, the Dutch, who are often referred to as the best the best nation to not win a World Cup? You've seen Croatia now in back-to-back World Cups knocking on the door, right, playing in a World Cup final and a semifinal, uh, knocking out what was many, what was largely regarded the top, um, the num- the number one choice going into the tournament in Brazil as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's so many things that in terms of this World Cup, and I've talked about it with some of our previous guests, is that for me, this was really the the, the World Cup where the the possession possession the possession based argument died right and what i think what you started seeing in terms of the trends there was two things that stood out to me where <coughs> excuse me teams were even if they were maybe the more defensive oriented they weren't going to park the bus for 90 90 minutes and then just try to occasionally try to counter you what you started seeing were they were within the respective halves there were phases, there were stages and phases of play within halves where they picked, they were picking their 10 to 15 minute window where they were going to, all of a sudden they were going shifting from a low block or a mid block to a high block, high press, and now going on, on the offensive. Right. Um, and you started seeing a lot of that where the other piece that I noticed was within each respect in a lot of games, the floodgate started to open up 30 minutes into each respective half. The goal started to come, right around the 30 minute mark in the first half and right around the 75 minute mark in the second half. So, which is why ironically, I mean, I was not shocked in that world cup final because that that's exactly, that's precisely where the game turned on its head in that second half, right? was a little right after that 75 minute mark. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think that the countries that you mentioned, the, you know, Holland, Croatia, if you look at again, the eight countries that have won World Cup tournaments, all of those eight champions border another country that's won a World Cup championship, with the exception of England. But if you take the English Channel as a border, they also border. So again, the culture piece is very big for me. And so if you look at, and you mentioned those countries, who border the other World Cup champions? Well, that's Croatia, that's Holland, that's Belgium. The outlier really was the Morocco because they did so well. But again, you know, the reality is this isn't a Cinderella sport, I say, where, you know, some outsider who's never come close to competing is going to go through a, a, a string of you've got to win just about every single game in a World Cup, at least after you get out of the group play. Um, so I think we are still we are starting to see some uh, light at the end of the tunnel. But again, it's the serial repeaters, right? It's the Brazils, it's the Argentinas, it's the France. And then we haven't even discussed Italy. Italy's a four-time World yeah. Cup champion. Yeah. Yeah. That was the European champions that really should have been in this World Cup, um, but they weren't. And I say sometimes in Europe, at least for the Europeans, it's harder to get into the World Cup than it is to win it once you've gotten into it. 
And so, yeah. you know, that's what's so good about the European game is that it's so competitive. And mm-hmm. day in and day out, they've got such a fierce competition and the culture is so strong that it helps to develop their neighbors as well. And a lot of countries don't have that. Um, so, you know, again, I do think that it's still going to go down to tradition. I do think that when they open up the format, adding the teams to 48, we're probably unfortunately going to hate to use this word, see some blowouts perhaps in the next world cup, Mm -hmm. because some of the minnows are going to get, you know, drawn into some of the big ones. So let's see, but, um, this could be, uh, this could be a, a very interesting world cup next round coming up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we assess Japan's Japan's performance, you know, they gave us in their group, they gave they gave us it was a phenomenal, right? Phenomenal phenomenal group play. Um, there was a period there in that third round final match where both, what was it, maybe a five to seven, eight minute period where both Spain and Germany were <laughs> were eliminated during the live live results. Yeah. Um when you assess Japan's performance and their improvement, what's what's your one big takeaway um, from their their performance, and how how is it being received there in Japan right now? Yeah, this was a major major breakthrough for Japanese football because of the belief system. For many many decades, Japanese players have been playing here in Japan, watching the stars of Europe and South America play through television. But now we finally, a majority of our national team plays in Europe. So they don't just watch them, but they play alongside of them and they play against them. So I'm, I'm a really a believer that the belief system that we needed to have a big breakout World Cup like this, where, you know, every time a World Cup, the draw comes out and we get these, you know, the, the, the group of death. And now we know regardless of what country Japan ever gets drawn into a future World Cup, that there's a belief that they can win that, win, win those games. And not only that, they won their group. So that is a huge, huge piece of the missing puzzle here in Japan is that belief system that they had. Because Japanese, kind of the society and culture is such of, you know, we're not worthy. There's like deep respect for your opponent. And, and you need to have that. But you also need to have, and I'll coin this, this is not my phrase, but it's a, a, fr- a new friend of mine, uh, Drew Broughton, who is a, a former uh, Premier League player who um, coined this phrase of what he says, a healthy disrespect that is very much needed by players and teams. Um, so I, I think that was the, this is the biggest lesson that we got out of Japan was the belief system because Japan needed to have that confidence now going into future World Cup tournaments to be able to do better than the past. And that is to break into the final eight um, and, you know, get into a quarterfinal and if not a semifinal as well. So this is a very, very successful World Cup uh, from the eyes of the Japanese football perspective. Bigger bigger winner coming out of this World Cup, the Asian Confederation or African Confederation? I think a little bit of both. I mean, obviously the shocker was Morocco. There's no doubt about it because they didn't just win and just get by. They played really quality football. They played attacking. I mean, it was just a wonderful to watch that team mm-hmm. play. Yeah, Asia, they picked pick their spots, right? They picked their moments. That's what made absolutely. it. They played a very attractive attacking style of, of play down the flanks through the middle. I mean, just everything they did. It was, it was a joy to watch. 
But yeah, AFC is definitely happy because over these last couple of World Cup tournaments, we haven't been able to even get into the uh, the round of 16. Um, and, you know, Saudi Arabia pulled off a big stunning win against Argentina. Uh, Korea did quite well. Iran, who usually does much better, struggled because of probably the the whole kind of political atmosphere that's going mm-hmm. on in that country. But Iran is actually one of the strong countries here um, as well. Australia, another one where I work. I'm proud to work. And I know a lot of the coaching staff uh, that were at the World Cup. Um, so that was a very good World Cup for Australia as well, because they they also, um, you know, they, they got, out of their, got, got out of their group. So, you know, these are these are they seem like, you know, kind of minor things, but they're actually quite big. When you look at incrementally, these countries kind of edging forward and 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 doing better overall, because as I say, it, this is it's it's very difficult to do well in a World Cup, let alone win it or get into this final eight or the final four. If it was really only about coaching, we would see many more countries that would be doing well. But it's not. I think it's the culture piece is is very very big. Um, so yeah, it's kind of my thoughts on it. Yeah. You know, and, and last piece on the World Cup, um, the the other ironic, the other trend that I was kind of noticing was it was the, I, I felt it was a World Cup where the older countries, right, that were, that were at the top end of the scale opposite of the, uh, of the United States felt like they got old, right? This was where they tipped over and got, officially got, you know, your, you mentioned Iran, we talked, <clears throat> excuse me, we all, everybody was talking about Belgium. Right. Yes. And then uh, Mexico, another one, just to name a few. Right. But they uh, it was where they were kind of officially if, over the hill, if you will, in terms of some of the people, that, some of their roster. Excuse I, me. So. So, yeah, I think that was another piece that kind of definitely stood out to me. I think it's that people don't understand and appreciate that that, that football is very cyclical. You've got countries that, you know, they have a good run. They have a good pool of players. Um, But those players get older and it's all about consistency. That's why you have to really kind of admire uh, the countries like the Brazil, like Germany, Uh, France now, what, three times, you know, they've made it to the final three, three of the last seven. Yeah. Yep. And but then you've also got the Italians who have been World Cup champions four times. Um, But, yeah, it's it's a very, very small, exclusive group. And I think it also has put together put to bed as well that, you know, Belgium had been ranked in the FIFA rankings number one for like the last eight years. And so (laughs) people were so, so I think the expectations were so high for Belgium that that was probably perhaps one of the biggest disappointments um, because individually they've got great players that are playing at the best clubs in the world, but collectively they definitely did not have a a successful world cup uh, according to their own kind of, you know, uh, ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So as we pivot here, Tom, tell us, I know one of the, one of the things that I found really fascinating that got my attention, got a lot of people's attention here in terms of in the Texas high school soccer scene was, I know you were, you recently attended the Japanese national high school tournament. Tell us, um, tell us a little bit about that. Just give us a little bit of a format history and tell us about that experience this year. Yeah, it's it's really a shocker to the outside world when they see these glimpses of pictures and videos of Japan's high school tournament. So I'll go through it. Basically, Japan is divided up into 47 prefectures, which are states. Uh, 
Uh, so basically, every year, um, there's a couple of, of tournaments. There's a couple of national tournaments, actually, here in Japan. But this is the biggest one, the high school tournament. Because Tokyo is so populated, we get two teams in it. So there's 48 teams that compete in this. It's a knockout round. It's a knockout tournament. It's not a group. You literally, from the qualifiers all the way to the final, which yesterday the final was played, you have to win every single game to be the champion. You can't lose one game. You have to win every single game. And the downside on that is, is even my son. So I've got two boys that are of, of one of his high school age. He plays in a, in a very good team here in Tokyo. I think they got to the fourth round when they got knocked out. But to to Tokyo, the competition is fierce because that's where all, you know, we've got hundreds of teams here. But then the winter, the so we go through this very, very long kind of qualificating qualification that starts around the, the, uh, the springtime or the summertime. And then it, the final stage of the tournament, which is all 48 teams uh, come up to Tokyo, and there's a couple of key stadiums around the area. And then those 48 teams that have been whittled down out of the hundreds of, right. of high schools, might be in the thousands, they play the final tournament. And that tournament, there's a huge spotlight on that tournament. It's, uh, it's been going on for 100, and this is the 101st year of the tournament. The final yesterday sold out the national stadium of 50,000 spectators. This starts, wow. the final wow. tournament starts right before the New Year's break. I think it was on the 29th of December. Um, and it's just a spectacle. It's built into the, the DNA or the fabric or the culture of, of Japanese, uh, of Japan. We have a similar tournament on the baseball side for high school as well. Mm -hmm. So it's just massive. And this is where a lot of Japan's stars are born. You can be, become a hero. If you win that tournament, Hector, this is unbelievable because I've got buddies of mine that have won it. One of my closest yeah. friends won it twice. You will forever be introduced as the guy that has won that national tournament, no matter where you go, no matter where you go. <laughs> it's, a, awesome. it's, yeah. it's a badge of honor. And it's only second to winning like a gold medal at the Olympics mm -hmm. if you win that yeah. tournament. So, And how long how long has that tournament been in, ex in existence in its current format? Yeah, so 100, it's the 101st year. Over 100, last year was the 100 year anniversary. So this thing has been going. And since I've been in Japan, which is 36 years plus, it's never lost its popularity. Um, it's just always been huge. It's always mm -hmm. sold out the national stadium, 50,000 people every time the final is played. Yeah. So On the contrary, have you seen it? Have you seen it grow in popularity? Yeah, it's just about maze more or less stayed the same. I mean, I couldn't see any, I can't see where it would be any more popular than it is today. It's just everybody is anticipating when it starts. They're excited. Um, it's on national TV. The finals that, you know, the, the, all the games, most of the games are played on live television. They're at the major stadiums here. It's, it's just mm -hmm. part of the, it's part of the culture here now. So, it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, what, what, what I have seen change is the enormous amount of interest from outside Japan. We've got tons of college coaches that are here mm -hmm. from even the United States that are here specifically just to watch that tournament to scout. Wow. So wow. It's picked up, I think with technology and social networking, when people see those highlights and they see the quality, first of all, the mm -hmm. quality is unbelievable. You know, the characteristic of Japanese football is it's very technical. 
So when they see these these games going on in front of, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 people, it's, you know, catches a lot of people's attention. Yeah. Yeah, I know when I saw it and what you were sharing on social media, I was just like, man, this thing looks like it looks like the opening ceremony of the Olympics, right? It was just That's it was it. done very classy, very I was like, wow. And then you show the stands and there's like 40, 50,000 in the stands. I'm like, wow. Um so what is it known as there? Does it have a nickname or what's the official name there locally? Of the, yeah, of this it would translate in, in English. It would translate into the All Japan National High School Soccer Tournament. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So here's the random question, right? Is I know you've been there for so long, but on any level, on because everything here is basically played at the state level. So on any level, could something like that, given the club environment here in the u.s could that be replicated on any level in this country you know what i'd like to i would have probably a year or two or before kind of probably said yes but i'll tell you what many elements of japanese football development and the format i don't think that model is exportable because again the culture accepts First of all, first of all, the, the teams that make it to these final stages in the high school tournament, these are football specialty high schools. We have schools mm. here that specialize in certain sports. Now, when you join one of those high school teams, that's almost literally like joining the military. First of all, there's no on-off se season. You will, for example, my, my son, so from a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best, my son's high school is probably about a five, four or five. They're not going to make it to the to the final, but they're, they're going to play at a good level and they're going to get knocked out in, their, in one of the blocks in Tokyo. But let me tell you just a little characteristics of my son's team. They train six days a week. Their only day off is on Monday, which means they go to school seven days a week, seven days a week. There's no off day, right? That's extreme right there, first of all. At the level of, the, of, of, of playing in that high school, and this is a mediocre team, right? They wear GPSs. They have monthly checks by doctors. They have um, wow. recovery bikes that they ride after training that simulate high altitude. I mean, where would you find that? Anywhere in the world. And so there's a culture here that accepts that the reason that Japanese players are so good, one of the reasons is, is because they overtrain. They train too much. They practice too much. They spend a ridiculous amount of time. Now, marry that on to what do they focus on? They focus on technical skill development. Even at the under 12 age group, kids will practice four to five times a week. And their training sessions will be anywhere between two to three hours per training session. Wow. So yeah. there is absolutely no way that American families would accept that their kids are going to practice a particular sport and they're special right. here. They specialize yeah. it. You can't play baseball and then also soccer and basketball and volleyball because there's no on off season here. The, the, the academic calendar goes from uh, uh, April to March. That's our school uh, calendar. So there's no on off time. That's why commercial football or soccer camps here aren't really big because who can go to them? There's no off season. So it's difficult to answer your question. Yeah. To, to yeah. run and, and to be honest with you, I'm not even saying that I'm a huge advocate of this. There's ups and there's downs and there's pros and cons to it. The biggest negative is, 
is that you wait all year for the tournament to start. Your team plays and half of the teams are out of the tournament the first week because they've lost. So they're, they're going to have to wait another year until they can enter mm-hmm. into that tournament. So yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. got, got its ups and downs. So tough one. Yeah. Wow. Interesting stuff. Now, is there any single component as you've seen this tournament through the years, is there any single piece that you say, it's like, Hey, this could work in the U S or this is, this is something similar that, that transpires in the U S but maybe with a little bit of tweaking, like I see here in Japan, I think it yeah, could elevate, well, elevate certain really things on, on the high school. Side. It would be difficult at the high school level because high school sports are seasonal, right? They don't play all year round. You're, you're, you're encouraged to play multi-sport as well. And in America, you know, the good U S of a, Everybody kind of does their own thing, you know, different seasons. Right. They don't go exact here in Japan. Everything's uniform. Everything starts on a certain day. Everything ends on a certain day. All of the qualifiers are on the certain day. Everything is like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And this isn't just for high school. We have an under 12 national tournament. We have a, a, an under 15 national tournament. So the under 12 national tournament too is, is a badge of honor. It's huge. And it's played on live television. Uh, prime time when the final is played in, 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 in as well. It just finished uh, uh, around Christmas time. So this is, is something that's very unique to Japan that I really don't think can be replicated. Now, at the club level, yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm assuming, I, I believe that America has some kind of national tournaments when it comes to, you know, some of the different leagues and organizations, the ECNL, and, you know, obviously in college we have it. Um, in, in, in the old high school days, when I grew up in upstate New York, Ronda Valley High School, it was very simple. The tournament, the season was like three months long, September, October, November, if you get in the playoffs. And then when it's done, you're forbidden from even practicing on a school facility until next year. So I, I'm, I'm not really up to date with what's happening with the high schools now. I would mm-hmm. like to think that it's changed quite a bit, but there were quite a few restrictions on lots of things when I was growing up. Right. Yeah. It has and it hasn't in so many ways, right? The, the more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess, if you will. Sure. But uh, yeah, that's a whole other conversation that uh, you and I can have. Um, so as we, we pivot here again, Tom, tell us, so give us a little bit more insight, right? So you briefly mentioned as the founder and author of Soccer Starts at Home, the book, but more so the initiative, been featured on so many different websites. I remember you were on uh uh, was it the HBO Real Sports? Right. Uh, yes. They did a did a did a segment on you as well. It was all great stuff. And then it was and then it brought you here. I think I want to say, don't quote me on this. 2018 or so, 2017, yes. 2018. It brought you here to Houston and in connection with the Houston Dynamo. So yes. tell us a little bit about that, what that experience was like, and where are you at with that right now? Sure. Well, Brian Ching who's a former Houston Dynamo legend and also national Mm -hmm. team player had, I believe come across my book and he had contacted me culminated in a, in a long uh, telephone call to, to, to us, between us. And he had taken a lot of interest in our work. And he said, listen, next time you're in the States, love to have you stop by uh, Houston. That coincided with me uh, being invited to the ECNL uh, AGM in Las Vegas, I believe it was. So, it was just a quick transition. I flew over to Houston and the, at the time, the Academy director, uh, Paul Holaker, um, he had embraced the concept of the whole program. He'd been a follower of the work already. 
and things just moved very quickly before you know it. I was in the room with the president, then president John Walker, and it was kind of music to their ears. I they set up a um a, a presentation for me to do at the uh, Dynamo uh, Academy facility where they brought in many of the stakeholders within the community of youth soccer. So I did my presentation and apparently uh, got very good feedback from it. So we entered into an agreement for three years. So for the first year, basically I would fly in every quarter and I would build the advocacy. This is basically how we work. We build the advocacy first internally in the organization of the Dynamo and then externally, all of the stakeholders, the state association, all the club teams, uh, families, um, the educators, and then the pandemic hit. And we were right. basically kind of forced to go online more digitally, which was kind of a good thing because then we carved out a strategy and we were embraced by the educators. And in Houston, they've got 17 school districts. My last trip in 2019, I believe it was, before the pandemic really hit, I was in, invited to the uh, Houston mayor's office to present uh, the whole concept of Soccer Starts at Home to a woman, Juliet Stepesh, who was the director of education for Houston schools. And she just loved what she loved the presentation. And so she offered up 17 school districts. So then the pandemic hit and we were forced to go online. So we partnered with a couple of different districts. And the really, really interesting thing about our program in Houston is, is that we have a strong research component. The University of Houston created a, a research laboratory and they're studying our program in the schools. And real, real quickly, what they're studying is not so much the impact of what it's having on the soccer development side, but our program is seen as a program that's much bigger than soccer that basically helps to develop a child's cognitive skills, mm -hmm. emotional skills, right. social skills, and physical skills. And we've gotten incredible uh, outcomes, positive outcomes to our program. So it's really kind of focused on getting parents, inspiring parents, moving them into action to interact with their young child. And when we say young child, we're talking about as young as three, four, five, six years of age. So we partner with schools, KIPP Charter Schools, HISD, which is Houston Independent School District, and many more, creating programming, pre creating, um, uh, we have online content for them. We do interactive accreditation programs for physical education teachers. So a lot of work has gone into this and we're in our fourth year. I extended a fourth year um, and the program has been going very well, but the research component has been, uh, has been really the big kind of shining star of the whole program because we're able to go to families now and not only try to promote our sport because football or soccer is number one in the world, but we can also sit in a room with several hundred families like I do, not just in Houston, but around the world. And I can convince families to put their kids in our program because we're going to make their kids smarter. We're going to make them better focused. So when you get a little child, a small child, and we're talking again, three, four, five, six years of age, you're introducing a ball to them in what we call ball mastery, not kicking it, but learning to control it. Right. Well, that's a very, very difficult mental task for a child to control an object, which is the ball. So when you have a child and you've got the mind and the body working as one, 
that supercharges learning because to, to, to control a ball is a mental task. So when a child marries that together with a mental task and a physical task, we're basically teaching children how to focus their attention. So when a, when a young child has focused attention and they learn how to pay attention, that's when they learn how to turn the all mighty powerful learning switch on. That's how learning takes mm -hmm. place. So you could bring the best coach in the world to your child's under six, under six, seven, under eight team. <laughs> if the child's not paying attention, learning doesn't take place. And it's the same in right. the classroom as well. So we're using football as the tool to basically develop children. And we know now through all of the, I work with Harvard University, Stanford University, many top educators in the world that took an interest in our program because of the cognitive and the academic implications our program has. Right. So you, you mentioned the outcomes, right? Where, and it was slowed down. Obviously it was slowed down, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. It wasn't stopped, but it was slowed down. But yes. where, where is the, where's the future headed in terms of this initiative, both in whether it be Houston and abroad, right? Is there, sure. have you thought about also a, a, I don't know, for lack of better, better words, a licensure or a certification process in, in this as well, as far as beyond the, uh, that as a next step, maybe down the road? Yeah. Well, our program has many layers to it. I like to think of it as a movement. Okay. And what is the movement? The movement is to focus on as, as many families uh, that have young children. And I often say to people, the partners that we look to partner with are the ones that can put us on the highest mountain peak with the largest megaphone and to shout down to the masses Football or soccer starts at home. So we try to partner with organizations that can deliver that to us. So, for example, that's early learning centers. That's preschools. Those are kindergartens. Those are first and second grade. Mm -hmm. And again, we try to focus on not just the, the soccer or the football application, but we, we, we want to focus on early child development. And in the science world and in the neuroscience world, they all know that the golden age for learning now has changed significantly. They thought it was a little bit of an older age group, but now they know that by the age of five or six, 95% of a child's brain is, is developed in those early stages. And so it's got many, many implications. It's about celebrating parents interacting with their young children through a fun kind of you know safe environment, which is the home where kids can fail in a fun way. But here's kind of the gift for parents for the whole program. And that is, is their understanding of their child's constant need for attention, for approval, and for praise. And what that does is it creates a chemical electrical process in the child, which is emotions. And mm -hmm. we know now that when you can create an emotionally charged environment, that's where deep learning and long-term memory takes place. And the best thing of all is it costs zero. Our program yeah. basically to reach families, it basically doesn't cost anything. So if you, if, you, if you understand that, the scalability is off the charts. In America alone, there's about 24, 25 million children under the age of six, assuming they all have a mom and a dad or a primary caretaker. You're talking about a huge, huge segment where not many people have given a lot of thought about football. So our program also, my last point is, is that 
this isn't a program where we're where 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 we're saying that we're going to turn all of these little kids into professional players because that's not our aim. Our aim is to just get these kids off to a flying head start, to build the neural pathways between the feet and the brain, and then there's a whole neuroscience component where 12 pages of our book was written by a Dr. John Rady, the foremost neuropsychiatrist from Harvard Medical School, that shows that the part of the brain that's being stimulated is what's called the cerebellum. That's the seat of the unconscious mind. So this program is seen upon as a way of developing the cerebellum. And so that's why the educators became so interested in our program, because it's got academic implications to it that are much wider probably than even the, the football or the soccer component. So we, we work with lots of different partners. I work with governments around the world, uh, ministries of education, ministries of sport, national bodies, football associations, state associations, even in the United States, I'm working on a couple of projects, professional clubs, professional leagues, media companies, brands. So we're quite busy and we're, we're very reactive, not really proactive because um, we're, we're very kind of, particular of who we partner with as well. But mm -hmm. Houston yeah. has been a very, very good pilot program for us for the, for, the, for the last couple of years. And we've got lots of other MLS clubs that are interested as well. Awesome. Great stuff. So this next one's an, this is a softball toss. This is an easy one for you. The future of, of youth soccer development. What is yeah, that? I, I think it's exactly what we're involved in. And that is, is that up until now, the football world has convinced everybody that uh, football development or soccer development in the traditional sense only happens between a, an experienced coach and a player. Now, coaches are important. There's no doubt about it. Don't get me wrong. I have an affection for coaches because I am one. But the reality is, is that when it comes to skill development, which is the foundation upon which you build all the rest of the part, the rest of the game on, that's the DNA of a player is their technical ability. All the other things of the, the systems, tactics, formation, scanning, those are all byproducts of being good technically, okay? So I think that we need to now bring families and educate parents as much or more than uh, coaches because they're the first line of development. And I know now too, through my own children, this is from, I know what I know because I've done it and I understand it better. And here's the elevator pitch. If you can get a child very comfortable with the ball at their feet before they cross over that line into organized play, which is usually six years of age, first grade, even paired with the inexperienced volunteer parent coach, those kids usually develop. And they'll develop up until a certain age. The, the, the problem in the kid that's at risk is the child who's never touched the ball and then he or she unfortunately gets paired with the inexperienced uh, volunteer right. parent coach and that kid. And if you look at the numbers, Hector, here, 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 listen to these statistics. And these were these came a couple of years ago from the Aspen Institute of Sport, where they do a lot of research. Yeah, 38.5% yeah. of American children who play soccer quit by the age of seven. And then another 50% drop off and quit by the age of 10. That's a huge amount. And mm. so I say, kind of sarcastically, I have a pretty good feeling it's not the good kids that are quitting. Of course there are, and there's other reasons why they quit. But for me, and this is the hill that I'm willing to die on every time, I believe that it's because most kids 
don't master or learn the basic building blocks to succeed. And then when they get a little bit older, mm-hmm. self-awareness kicks in and they see I'm not getting playing time. The older I get, I got to make a more of a commitment and they're not having any fun. So that's the way that I see development through my lens of everything that I've done here. Uh, I've, I, I've done a ridiculous amount of observation. I've interacted with more than half a million children in Japan alone through events that I've done over you know 30 years. So I see that basically the trajectory is set completely different when you've got a child who enters into organized play and is already comfortable with the ball at their feet. And I've seen that with my kids because even here in Japan, the coaching isn't as good as people believe it is, but we develop very good technical players. So someone would say, well, that's a contradiction. How can you develop strong players when the coaching isn't good? Because here it is. And Roy Keane said it best. Skill was and never will be the result of coaching. It's a love affair between child and ball. And it comes back to that. That's where the culture piece fits in. Yeah. So that's how I see it. So last one here as we start uh, we start wrapping up, getting ready for our, our next segment. We know you're going to stick around with us here, Tom, is you could identify one, just one, right? Whether 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 it be in, in Japan and the United States or maybe both, maybe it's one and the same, but the biggest change you project, you can you think you can project in either of those or both of those in turn in the next maybe five years as far as their youth development strategy? Well, I think that first of all, in the United States that, and you know, a lot, this is debated and I know there's a lot of people out online and social media that are always kind of banging the drum of, you know, the U S isn't getting it right. But I think if one thing that I've learned was a learning curve for me is that how well, the MLS academies are run and the amount of resources that we have finally in America understood the value of professional academies. So eventually most of the best players are going to show up at these academies because now you're taking away the play, the pay to play model because, and I've been there, I've been in Houston where I've been driving around in a car with the Academy director where we've seen kids playing off, in a, in a pitch at eight or nine o'clock at night and the ability for the Academy director of any MLS Academy to stop their car, pull up, watch, and literally invite a kid to come and train at the Academy. So that's a big, big piece. I think that we're, 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 there's still a lot of work to be done, but I think that the game is changing significantly. And we've got a lot of our players from the U S national team that are playing on these top clubs that are, playing Champions League football. So I think that that's good and it's going to only get better. I think it's a bit similar to here in Japan as well. Although I think that we've been probably a little bit more organized here, especially because we have a three-tiered system here of promotion relegation. We've got 56 teams, J1, J2, J3. So I think that Japan can only continue to become and get better But I think that when it's relative to what I'm doing, and even in Japan where I've been here for 35, 36 years, I think that both countries can still do much better when it comes to understanding the culture piece and the implications and the impact we can have by including parents and making it more inclusive rather than looking at parents as this kind of, you know, this image of, uh, you know, the, the soccer mom or the soccer dad and, you know, trying to keep them as far away from development in the field as we can. They, 
I think that that we need to embrace and understand the role that parents can play when it comes to early child development. So that's kind of my two cents on both countries in a way that I think it, it, the state of the, it is now and where we need to kind of get to in the future. Great stuff. Great stuff. He is Tom Beyer, the founder and author of Soccer Starts at Home, as well as a world-renowned international trainer and consultant. Uh, Tom, this has been great. Appreciate you. Uh, we know you're going to stick around here. We're going to bring you back for our counterattack segment where we get to have some fun with you. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsor. College Promoters USA, founded and located in San Antonio, operates as the only family-owned college recruiting company in Texas that brings a truly professional, local, and face-to-face -face approach to area high school student-athletes and their families. As the lead sponsor and proud supporter of the 5050 Podcast, alongside Coach Hector Cano, College Promoters is proud to be elevating its support for the college soccer recruiting process more than any other service in the country. If your son or daughter is serious about competing in college soccer, call College Promoters USA directly at 210-494-6363 or visit collegepromotersusa.com anytime. College Promoters USA, the best investment a parent can make in their high school student-athlete. And we're back with Tom Beyer, the founder of founder, I should say, and author of soccer, the Soccer Starts at Home Initiative, as well as the world-renowned international trainer and consultant. Uh, Tom, it, it is about that time. You ready for a counterattack? Uh, I'm looking forward to this. All right. So I'm going to keep you on ice here for a second. Before we do, before we get started with counterattack, I want to tell you guys about our good friends at Gipper. So we've been partnering with Gipper for going on six months now and they've done phenomenal work in support in support of us and working with us as our partners doing absolutely unbelievable graphics helping us out um so gipper is the way that schools athletic departments ad's coaches create world-class marketing content join over 2500 coaches and ad's and use gipper to create high quality visual visual branded graphics for your program the best part anyone can do it in seconds on any device without needing any design experience and if you do have design experience, they are also designed for the what they call the power user uh, in mind. So what you quickly realize, if you have significant experience in this world, as far as on the artwork and the digital graphics, you can do so much more, so many awesome things with their with their product. So uh, to get more information, again, so 5050 podcast listeners, you can also save money. So by you can receive a 10% off first time purchase for the Gipper annual package. All right, so, so visit gipper.com slash partner slash 5050. Again, gipper.com slash partner slash 5050 for your 10% off discount their annual package. All right, ready? Great. Here we go. All right, so don't have that many here. Just maybe, maybe only about a dozen that we're going to pepper you with. So uh, here we go. First one, yep. greatest and worst sports movie. Oh boy, greatest in sport. The greatest probably was the show, the movie. Um, well, Tin Cup was a good one with Kevin Costner. Yeah, Tin uh, Cup. Like, yeah, Tin <laughs> Cup, the golf one. Uh, yeah. I thought that was a good one. Um, the worst. That's I can't really. Boy, I can't. I, 
what was the worst sports movie? You got me on that one, man. I'm trying to think. I'm just trying to even think of some of the good ones that I watched. That was Tin Cup and also Field of Dreams. That Field of Dreams. Okay, let me go first back and recorrect. My favorite one was Field of Dreams. That also had Kevin Costner in it. Yeah, I was going to say anything with Kevin Costner. I'm seeing a trend here. Yeah, and I can't think of the worst because I can't remember so many that I've watched. Oh, man, you're going to have to maybe give me a pass on that one. I can't really even think of any movie. Um, You got to remember, too, I've been living in Japan for 36, 37 years. So I'm sure there's been a few that have escaped me um, in the States, but I can't really think of that one. All right. So maybe we can come back to that one. We'll see. All right. Former nickname of yours that most people didn't know you had. Oh, that's great. That's very easy. Howie. 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 What's the story behind that? Yeah, there's only a couple of guys that I grew up with. And you know what? It, it, this is this is hilarious, man. In the olden days, I used to be the a prankster, and we used to make prank phone calls. And for some reason, I picked this name, Howard, that I was Howard calling, doing these prank phone calls. Yeah. And literally, I've got a couple of friends of mine. They call me Howie from my whole life. That's yeah. it. Wow. So it's, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. And you rattled that one right off, though. That's good. Yeah. All right, next one. Favorite and least favorite soccer team. Wow, this is a tough one too because I'm I've never really bought into this kind of tribalism of just like following one particular team because I usually okay, so I've got to give you answers though. Favorite <laughs> team. Oh man. Um, or maybe at one point at, at one point that you were just all about this particular Team. Yeah, I'd have to say Liverpool, probably even growing up as a kid. Although, yeah, okay, if I'm really honest, then New York Cosmos. There yeah, you go. That was there the average. Go. That was the age that yeah. I grew up in. The team that I dislike. I don't want to. I don't. Man, I don't want to tick off anybody <laughs> that, you know with this global network of mine. But um, okay, I'm gonna have to say it. I've never really been a huge Barcelona fan, but let me yeah. give a caveat on that. I love some of the players, Xabi, Iniesta, right, right, right. Messi. I love those players, but for some reason, I never bought into getting on the, the, the bandwagon of Barcelona. So yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. but that would have to be yeah. my answer. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I know exactly where you're coming from. I, I feel in many ways I, I, I can relate. I can, I'll just, I'll just keep it at that. So, <laughs> yeah, because there's a way, right? There's a way that you can have an appreciation and a, yes, you know, of deep respect for the individual players within that system, but not necessarily the jersey yeah. itself, right? That's right. right. Or the, exactly. the club these itself. Are, yeah. These are great questions, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. All right, you'll love this next one. A Disney character that describes you. Oh, boy. Oh, that's a tough one, too. <laughs> Stomping you today. Oh, man. Uh, well, if I got to go with one, I might as well go with the leader, Mickey. So There you go. Okay. I guess Mickey Mouse. Yeah. All right. Good one. There you go. Yeah. All right. As as a coach in your coaching day, not in your playing days, any game day superstitions or rituals? Um, co- coaching, you're saying, right? Correct. 
Yeah, there are. Usually before most of my, when I say coaching, I'm, I basically focus on these huge events and I'm, I go and I'm a clinician. Mm -hmm. I do. And almost always a ritual. I've got my headphones on. I'm listening to some inspiring music, which is usually um, some, some hard rock and roll. Aerosmith, Bon Jovi. Okay. That kind of gets me going because then I'm, I go out and I'm on stage with like several hundred kids on a field right. and I'm doing a coaching session. So yeah, yeah it's a ritual. Definitely. Gets the blood flowing. All right. Yep, good. Absolutely. Good, good. All right. Next one. Which one describes you cautious or bold? Oh, bold. Very bold. Super yeah. bold. All right. Never yeah. Very rarely cautious. That's my weakness. <laughs> bold. Yeah, okay. Bold. So you'll, you'll love this next one. So this yeah. is one I ask every coach. So Tom Beyer is appointed the, the new position that's made in America. Soccer, soccer czar in America. You are appointed the soccer czar. And what is the very first change in, in terms of soccer in America? Agenda item number one, what is the very first change you would make in regarding soccer in America tomorrow? That's very simple. It's just everything I'm preaching for this last hour. And that is I would devise a strategy and implement a program that would be focused on the parents in the United States of educating them on the importance of engaging with their kids. It's just like I always say, if I was a coach of a team of an under six, under eight, under 10 team, my first meeting of the day would be with the parents without the kids. Mm. I'd be teaching them exactly what I'm expecting from them and empowering them and showing them how they are going to actually take on more of the, I wouldn't say the burden, but the responsibility of developing their own child much more than me, the coach that they've been selected to have. So that's a no brainer for me. And that would be awesome. anywhere in the world. That would be my first step. Nice. Great stuff. Something you wish you were better at. Wow. Uh, being a husband, <laughs> <laughs> being a husband. Yeah. I can also relate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I could definitely okay. do some more. I could, I could brush up some skills in that area. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great stuff. Yeah. We, we won't dig any further on that one. I promise. <laughs> All right. Uh, if not a coach, you would have been what? Oh, easy. A neuroscientist. I love it. That's my hobby. I, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with uh, neuroscience and this whole also mind body the whole studying of mind body, but it's, it's really mm -hmm. psychology, neuroscience. That would be my second coming. Okay. Great. Yeah. I could see, I can definitely see the connection obviously with everything we've discussed for sure. So yeah. most recent binge watch. So Netflix, whatever their Hulu, whatever oh, you have access to simple. there. Yeah. I watched the, uh, the the series called the chosen. It's actually a, a bit of a, a, it's a story about Jesus, actually. Mm. And I've I been watched the first and the second season, and I just thought it was fantastic. So that's, that's what I watched recently. Okay. Next one. Beach, hiking, or skiing? I would say hiking, believe it or not. Okay. Yeah. All right, next one. You'll love this next one. The go-to karaoke song. What is it? Oh, my goodness. It depends which language it is. If it's Japanese, I have a certain specific called E&I, 
Um, okay. But if it's English, it would be uh, Bon Jovi. I, 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 I sing a lot of Bon Jovi songs, but Bed of Roses. Bed of Roses. All right. Yeah. Good deal. All right. And the last one. So, and this will tie everything we've talked uh, talked to, talked about today. This will tie it all together. So you'll love this one. Knowing what you know now, right? As a coach, if you could go back to your playing days when you when you were a lot younger, how would you have coached you? Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, I would have focused on much more skill development back when I was younger. And I would have also focused on more, and this is a very new hot topic, this whole area of scanning and mm -hmm. understanding and reading the game much better from a young age off the ball. And yeah, so those, yeah. would be, those would be two areas that I would definitely want to have improved in. I, when I was a young kid growing up, the big thing, go-to thing was juggling a ball. Mm -hmm. And I was great at it. I, I, one, I one time videoed myself, a VHS video, juggling the ball 10,000 times. It took me two hours. Okay. Yeah. So that was the big thing back then. But knowing now what I know, how important ball mastery is. Right, right. And because I had the, I had the desire and the motivation to practice, it's just that I didn't know what to practice that would, would have made me a much mm -hmm. better player. So that's what I – if I had it to do all over again, I would have really, really – dove really into more of the ball mastery and, and mm -hmm. learning to master the ball much better than I did yeah. because I didn't understand it back then. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a great point that you talk about the movement, right? The movement off of the ball, because as we all know how much time on average in a match, right? And this is if you're playing the entire match, um, how much time you're spending off the ball. So the scanning emphasis, uh, very, yeah, I definitely, definitely place a certain level of premium on that. For a number of reasons i know there was a recent clip that i saw not too long ago i think it was on social media i don't know if you've come across it where it's a it's about maybe a 15 to 20 second clip of of xavi right xavi on the ball yep and he scans in that span he scans both on and off the ball somewhere in excess of 30 times um in in that span just constantly between and and i think he touched the ball one time, two touch, maybe a two or three touch pass is all it was. Um, but uh, his awareness, the spatial awareness, and the being able to being able to exploit the space as well. Um, it, it was. It's. A, I'll have to look for it and be able to share it with you. But it, it was a phenomenal. I think I want to say maybe a thirty second clip. Yeah. Well, you know the thing is that I mean scanning isn't something new. Players have been doing it for decades. <laughs> But what's new is the science of the understanding of the scanning. The understanding, and, yeah. And yeah. what it is, what's the information they're actually taking in. Right. And I remember, because even when I was a kid playing, yeah, I mean, I wasn't as good technically as I would like to be. As surely not as good as my... The, the biggest frustration I have is my two boys are so good technically. And I only wish that I was as good as they were at their age, because I think I had more motivation... Um, and desire uh, to do something with that, then, then even then, so it's almost like they don't even understand how good they are and how they could become. Yeah. But again, the scanning part, I think, is a byproduct of being very comfortable with the ball at their feet and understanding, but they've taken it to another level. I mean, right. I've got guys that work in the space here where I've, 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 I've gotten presentations where it's, it's just a different world. The information mm -hmm. that they're taking in 
is so right. crucial. They're basically mapping the field. And they're mm -hmm. no, you know, basically what happens in the traditional sense is most young kids, they'll be playing in a game, a ball will be passed to them, and they will watch the ball travel to their feet. They'll get it under control. Then they will lift their head up. They will look for an option, and then they'll execute. But the shabbies of this world, the messies of this world, they've cut out two or three of those already, those elements. And mm -hmm. by the time the ball comes to their feet, they've already worked those out. And it's yeah. an unbelievable skill. And it can be trained, uh, especially if you have a good technical ability. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a new science that's really new here now. Yeah, the interpretation of the new science of when we hear scanning, I just I view it as the the process, right? The the speeding up of the process yes. that facilitates facilitates the decision making, right? Absolutely. I think that's Absolutely. yeah, that's 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 how I interpret it. That's it's awareness, you know, knowing where you are on the pitch, how far are you from behind your goal, how close are you to the nearest goal, the touch lines, your your closest opponent, your closest teammate, all of that. But they've got that. Mm -hmm. you know these top players yeah. and it, it it kevin de Bruyne is probably one of the best in the world at that yeah yeah well said well this has been uh tom this has been phenomenal we've uh appreciated having you on here gave us a lot of great info uh tremendous stuff tremendous insight on an international level as well big fans of yours so we're grateful for your time um as we wrap up here as is customary with our guests we always like to wrap up with final thoughts so whether it's a thank you, a shout out, something that's on your mind in regards to the soccer world, what have you, anything you want to share. Uh, we, we like to wrap up with final thoughts. And since you are our guest with the floor is yours. Yeah. Well, first of all, I do a lot of interviews around the world and a lot of podcasts. And I have to say that, uh, Hector, you've done an, an outstanding job. Just everything, the, the preparation, the professionalism, just the first approach to me, everything has been first class. So I commend you for that, for you and whoever the, the organization behind supporting you. I think that the media plays a massive role in development. And as we talked a little bit before the show started, I'm always happy to accommodate people in the media because we can reach, you know, hundreds, thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands or millions of people. So I really want to say actually a thank you to you uh, of appreciation for giving me the opportunity to talk to your listeners and your followers. And I'd be happy to come back at any time to follow up on numerous other subjects <laughs> that I know are dear to both your heart and my heart and everybody else that are right. of our football loving community. So with that, <laughs> I'd just like to say thank you. Yeah. Well, and we uh, definitely appreciate the kind words coming from, from you for sure. And uh, also um, we definitely got to get you back down to Texas and, bring you west of uh west of houston next time get you down to san antonio get you uh, maybe get you on the other side i'm originally from el paso so we can get you uh that's that's about almost as far as uh houston from el paso as where you and i are right now san antonio and tokyo believe it that's how big texas is so uh <laughs> i say that tongue-in-cheek of course but uh but yeah definitely got to get you back uh, at some point so we cannot thank you enough. We appreciate you. <laughs> we appreciate uh, having you here. Um, now, I did have one one follow-up. Any um, upcoming events, plugs, where can we find more information on the many awesome things that you're doing? Where can, where can our listeners go for that, Tom? Sure. I mean, I'm pretty active on Twitter. My Twitter handle is uh, Tomson106. Um, and that's where basically I interact with everybody. 
Um, I am known to literally reply to just about every single contact or approach that comes to me. Um, if, if it's done in a polite way and even the non-polite ways, I usually re return that as well. But yeah, I've got a, a lot going on in 2023. Um, I haven't been to the States since the pandemic happened, so I will be making yeah. a visit. Um, and I could be coming to a neighborhood near to you or wherever, but I will be yeah. coming hopefully to Texas as well, but just kind of be on the, the lookout, but I'm pretty active and I, I put my schedule quite a bit, um, out on, on social networks. So I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, and you can just kind of find me by Googling my name. So, and one last thing, because I, I gave my little plug about my, my dislike of the team. I have to give one more caveat that I have to say that although I'm not a huge Barcelona fan, I'm a fan of their players, but I'm a massive, massive Pep Guardiola fan. He's probably oh, my yeah. favorite yeah. coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny how that works, right? How you can not be a fan and be such a fan at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, and there was something, a follow-up to what you were talking about in regards to your, your, your skill and your sons, right? And then the, the desire and discipline and whatnot but uh it's i was thinking to myself when you mentioned that how it's funny how the, the soccer gods work like that right how they give they, <laughs> they give some of us they bless us with certain things and they bless others with with other components and sometimes you're looking across and you're just like man if i had if i had this person's this or if if i yeah. just had a little bit of that right so it's absolutely. it's funny how that works yeah. absolutely so, absolutely so. Awesome. This has been great, Tom. And again, for our listeners, for our supporters, uh, thank you so much. We appreciate you. We always say you're the reason why we do it. Never gets old. And we don't say it to pander. We say it to keep us focused in terms of what our mission is. So we're off to a great start in 2023, being able to have great guests such as Tom, Tom Byer here. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. Keep downloading, like, rate, subscribe, go to YouTube. Again, you can find us on social media, on Twitter at 50 underscore 50 pod as well as on Instagram at 50 underscore 50 podcast. You can also find us on YouTube at the 50 underscore 50 podcast. Go on there, subscribe, sign up for the notifications. So you can always get notified when our upcoming episodes will be coming out. We'll be coming out with more episodes in the coming weeks as well. So keep doing your thing. We appreciate you. Tom, don't go anywhere. We'll be, uh, we'll follow up with you right after this, but for our listeners, you, uh, you're the reason why we do it as we always say. So keep doing everything you're doing in support of the podcast. We appreciate you. And until the next time, keep downloading and keep listening. You've been listening to the 5050 podcast powered by college promoters, USA. Help us continue to grow by liking, rating, and subscribing on all major podcast platforms. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at 50 underscore 50 pod on Instagram at 50 underscore 50 podcast, as well as on YouTube at the 50 underscore 50 podcast. Until the next time, keep downloading and keep listening.